I just wanted to reiterate uh, Pat's invitation to come to the 50th celebration uh, Sunday evening as our worship service. And uh, in case you came in late or missed it, we're not having Sunday morning worship on the 13th. Um, remember, we are, we're kind of ringed by the marathon, and last year it was absolutely impossible to get here uh, if you didn't come in with me at 6.30 to uh, arrive at church. So we'll just do the evening worship service, the banquet on Friday night. Uh, let me encourage you. Uh, make sure you sign up, and if, if money is an issue, we've already had uh, several folks who are members of the congregation for a long time say, we don't want anybody to not come because of money. So there's a little box you can check, or you can tell someone, I need a scholarship, and your banquet uh, can be paid for. So please, uh, please come. So let's get into the text this morning. I need you to turn with me to Acts chapter 15. I'm going to be in the center of the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 16, 15, 15, that's important. Let me start with a story. Uh, early in our marriage, uh, I heard about an investment opportunity, amazing investment opportunity. If we put our money into this investment, uh, it would almost certainly double, possibly even triple in the first year, and it would yield dividends after that. And Tristy and I had set aside some money already with some, some savings, and I came home and I told her about this. I said, this is an amazing opportunity. You know, it's, it, this is almost guaranteed. I think that we need to take a chunk of our savings and put it into this investment opportunity. Now, you need to know uh, something about me is normally I'm super conservative, uh, about money kind of stuff. I'm very, very, very frugal. In fact, uh, right after we got married, we got in the car. We're about to drive away for our honeymoon. And one of my good friends, uh, who's also a groomsman, Andy Rettenmeyer, uh, put his head in the window and he said to me, Brian, don't be cheap. <laughs> so, I, you know, I mean, and that was rightly spoken even at that moment in time. So that's my, you know, it's always been kind of my normal orientation toward financial things. But I heard about this and I was like, Oh my gosh, we just, we got to dial in. We got to get into this deal. And so uh, I told Tristy about it and um, she goes, "Mm, I don't know, maybe, you know, how about like half of what you just suggested and, and, you know, against my better judgment as an economics major and understanding finances and investments, I gave in, I said, all right, we'll just put in that smaller amount, but we're missing out, blah, 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 right? Well, she was right. I was wrong right? Almost immediately, like within a couple of months, the entire investment collapsed. We lost everything that we put into that investment. And there are lots of morals to this story. (laughs) Let me just point out one, uh, which is, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. It almost certainly is, right? It's kind of a fundamental principle in life. I remember uh, first economics class that I took, the prof stood up and he told a fable a fable was about a powerful king. In some versions of this fable, uh, it was Nebuchadnezzar. Well, this powerful king, he wanted to understand his kingdom and how it functioned. So he enlisted the help of the smartest, wisest people in his kingdom, the economists, right? So, that's, yeah, I, that's what economists think. So they, he enlisted all of his economists coming. He said, I want you to explain how my Kingdom works in as few words as possible. So they all got together and they came back to him and they brought 87 volumes of 600 pages each. And so he executed half of them. (laughs) So he sent the other half out and he said, same commission. Well, they came back with almost an equally voluminous work. And so he executed another half of them. Pretty soon he was down to just one economist, right? Only one economist left. And he came in and he said this to the king, sire, 
In eight words, I will reveal to you all the wisdom that I have distilled through all these years from all the writings of all the economists who once practiced their sciences in your kingdom. Here it is. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. (laughs) There ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? And, And we really, if we're honest, we believe that, right? It's too good to be true. You, you know how to finish my sentence. No such thing as a, a free lunch. You can't get something for nothing. And certainly not eternal life. Right? Certainly not eternal life. Okay, that basic mentality was already embedded in the early church and it caused the church to be thrown into conflict and forced the church to clarify the very nature of the gospel because some said, that's too good to be true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You can't get something for nothing. You can't tell me that eternal life is a free gift, that the forgiveness of sins is an absolutely free gift, that God would actually be that gracious and they attacked the doctrine of the grace of God. And this was... I would say the the most important early battle that the church fought to defend the doctrine of God's grace. Defending the doctrine of God's grace. It occurs right in the middle of the book of Acts. I would say, in a sense, it is the pinnacle that we have been building toward. Let me set the stage again for you. The church exploded on the day of Pentecost and then grew rapidly. 3,000 people the first day, almost entirely Jews, and then more Jews coming in. The church originally was almost entirely comprised of Jewish people. But then the gospel began to leak out to Gentiles or non-Jews. Samaritans believed in Jesus. An Ethiopian believed in Jesus. A Roman centurion and all of his family believed in Jesus. But all of those people had something in common, and that is that they really lived fairly moral lives, right? The Jews had the law. And tried to practice the law. The Samaritans had part of the law. They had the first five books. And they tried to practice that. The Ethiopian apparently was a convert to Judaism. And he was studying the law. He owned copies of the law. Cornelius was a God-fearing man. So all of them led fairly moral lives. But when Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey, all of that changed. Because they began to open the door to the family of God to people who are from pagan, immoral backgrounds. A very different kind of people. And what was remarkable is they didn't say to those people, look, first you need to learn the law and you need to obey the law and you need to clean up your life. Instead they said, here is salvation freely offered by God. Come as you are. And even more remarkable than that, once they were in, they didn't immediately begin to teach them the law and say, now that you're in, you must obey the law. Keep the law. Learn the law. You need to live like a Jew. And there were Jews who objected and they said, that is, that is crazy. You will destroy the church. And so the church went to battle for the doctrine of grace. I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 15 and verse 1. It says, some men came down from Judea to Antioch. And they began teaching the brethren. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. 
When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But when some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses, the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. Now, chapter 15, uh, verse 1, you can just write in the margin there, awkward. This was an awkward moment for the church. Paul and Barnabas are standing up speaking, preaching publicly, and in the middle of their sermons, some other men stand up and say, that's wrong. And they begin to get into a shouting match over this. There's great dissension, great debate. The church is going to battle. These men are later called uh, Judaizers. Luke tells us that they are primarily uh, Pharisees. Pharisees who had believed in Jesus, but believed that Faith alone wasn't enough. You had to also obey the law. And they had a fear. As you open the door to all of these Gentiles from pagan, immoral backgrounds, they don't know how to behave. And they're really going to mess up the place. And they're going to drag the church down morally. And the only solution for that is rules. Rules that we know. Rules that we keep. That's what will save the church. This is the introduction of legalism into the church. One of the first battles that the church fought, one of the most important battles the church fought, I would simplify this uh, large concept by describing it as this. Legalism is getting in, staying in, or proving that you are in by keeping the rules. A legalism could be getting into the family of God by keeping the rules. That's what these Judaizers are pushing. Or staying in the family of God by keeping the rules. Or proving that you are in the family of God by keeping the rules. That is legalism. And it threatened to choke out the very life of the church. Because remember, they're not saying faith is irrelevant. They're just saying it's not sufficient. It's necessary and it's a starting point. These were Jewish believers. They were Pharisees. They knew the law. And they had believed that Jesus was the Son of God and the Messiah. But they said that's not enough. Faith alone is not enough. God's grace alone is not enough. We have to contribute to this process of salvation. We must keep the rules. This is just too good to be true. And church, I would argue that the church remains constantly under attack from legalism. It might not be obedience to the law of Moses. It might be obedience to a list of rules that a denomination or a particular church has created. And they say, if you want to get in or if you want to stay in or if you want to prove you're in, you have to behave like this. Otherwise, you're out. In fact, just this week, I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine. He works uh, as a pastor in another denomination. And in the course of our conversation, it began to be clear to me, I don't think he believes that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so I asked him directly, is it faith alone or faith and? And he said, it's not faith alone. Of course you must believe, but then you must work. You must work to get in and you have to work to stay. And in fact, if you don't do the right works, you can forfeit your justification and you can lose eternal life. I was like, wow. I feel deeply sad for you. He went on to say, well, I'm sure that I'm going to heaven. I said, well you believe in Jesus Christ, I'm probably more sure about your salvation than you're sure about your salvation. And he laughed, but I didn't. 
This morning, I want to challenge you in your understanding of the grace of God. I want you to think again about the grace of God and think deeply about the grace of God. Is there any sin that a person can commit that would keep them out of the family of God? Is there any sin that has been committed that Jesus Christ didn't pay for? Is there any righteousness that you can do that proves you belong in the family of God? Or is it all of grace? As Charles Spurgeon once said. Fortunately for us, the church went to battle and defended the grace of God. And at the Jerusalem Council, they won. But I would argue the battle continues. Read with me chapter 15 again, verse 2. It says, And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. The church decided that grace is worth a fight. Notice again, verse 2, it says they had great dissension. Uh, that's very, very tame translation. The word for dissension is literally an uprising, an insurrection, or a, rev- a revolt, right? So Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and others revolt against it. There's an insurrection in the church. It's, it's chaos. People are yelling and shouting. I promise you, you can't really get a sense of, of what's happening just by reading the, the, this verse. You've got to understand the vocabulary here. Things erupted in the church. And they're fighting in the church. Now to understand what happens, is happening here, I think it helps to get a sense of the sequence or the chronology. There's a great debate about how do you reconcile Acts 15 and Galatians, but let me put together for you what I think is happening sequentially here in the life of the church. Paul's first visit to Jerusalem was in Acts chapter 9. Sometime after his conversion, he went up to Jerusalem. I want you to hold your place here in Acts and turn to the book of Galatians, and we'll try to synthesize these two accounts. Okay, so Paul was converted, Acts chapter 9, Damascus Road experience. Then chapter 1, verse 18 of Galatians, it says, Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. That's Paul's first visit to Jerusalem. It didn't last very long. It wasn't a deep conversation with the other apostles. And then uh, Paul left. Paul's second visit to Jerusalem is described in Acts chapter 11, verse 30, where he and Barnabas uh, took the offering that was made for the the saints in Jerusalem who were uh, experiencing famine. That was Paul's second visit uh, to Jerusalem. Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. After an interval interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. In other words, Paul says, I wanted to make sure that when I was opening the door wide to the Gentiles and I was not demanding that they get circumcised and keep the law, that I was on track. And you know what? The apostles welcomed me and they said, that's true. That's the gospel message. That was at Paul's second visit. Then Paul returned to Antioch and he was there for a period of time. He was teaching the believers in Antioch and then the argument broke out. The conflict broke out because there were some people who came from James. James would later say they really weren't from us, but they came from the church in Jerusalem, and they began to stir up an argument and create dissension in the church. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. 
For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, that is, Jewish believers who believe that you've got to get circumcised and keep the law. And Peter was afraid of them. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Do you see what happens? They came and they began to say, no, you've got to get circumcised first. And Peter folded. Peter knew the truth. Peter had experienced salvation of Gentiles with Cornelius and his family in in Acts chapter 10, but he folded under pressure. And Paul knew it's not conviction. Peter's responding to fear. And so Paul gets in his face because what's happened? They come together for a worship service and they always share a meal. And now what's happened? There's a wide aisle between the Jews and the Gentiles. Previously, Peter would sit and he would eat with the Gentiles and enjoy fellowship with them. Why? Because what God has declared clean, let no man declare unclean. But then these Jewish legalists came and Peter got afraid and he moved to the other side of the aisle. And because he was Peter, all the other Jews came with him. Even Barnabas breaking Paul's heart. And so what does Paul do? He gets up in Peter's face. And you need to understand that the power of this moment. At this point in time, Paul is really, in a sense, still a second-tier apostle. This is Peter. Peter and James and John. John's been beheaded, but James is still alive. And then there's James, uh, the the brother. Or James has been beheaded, but there's James, the brother of Jesus. And these are the the bigwigs in the church. This is the power players. It'd be like, I have an opportunity to actually meet Billy Graham, and what do I do? Well, I pull him out in a public arena and say, Billy, you're wrong. Billy, you, you're, you're messing up the gospel. All these crusades that you've been doing, you're way off base. Chuck Swindoll, <laughs> you, you don't even know the word, Chuck. You don't know what you're talking about. Tony, I can't even tell what you're saying, man. You're off base. That's not what gospel is about. It'd be like me saying that to them. Again, incredibly tense moment for the church. Notice what Paul says. Verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in the presence of all, right? He doesn't pull Peter aside privately. He says, Peter, you are, you're messing with the gospel, and so we need to have this out in front of everybody else. In the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter, you've been breaking law. You've been eating with the Gentiles. You haven't been obeying all of the dietary restrictions and everything else. And now you're telling Gentiles they have to do that to be saved? We are Jews by nature and not sinners, that is lawbreakers from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, and this is one of the most important verses in Galatians and for the gospel, Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Wow. Man, Paul nails it, and he is not afraid to fight for the gospel. So, the church in Antioch erupts and they say, we need to bring in some higher powers to solve this. Paul and Peter are fighting and our church is divided. And so they send 
Paul and Barnabas and other apostles back to Jerusalem as Paul is walking from Antioch south toward Jerusalem. I believe that's when he begins to write the book of Galatians. He doesn't refer to the Jerusalem council because it hasn't happened yet. I think what he's doing is he's getting his history, his chronology, and all of his arguments in place to make a defense for the gospel. So on his way, he writes the book of Galatians. Then he has a third visit that's described in Acts chapter 15, verse 4. He comes back to Jerusalem. The apostles hear what he says, and they said, we need to get together and figure this matter out. Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. In my opinion, as Peter has opportunity to take a very long walk from Antioch back to Jerusalem, Peter regains his conviction because he stands up again now with Paul and he says, this is the gospel. And it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The church, though, was at a moment of crisis where some were saying, no, that is just too good to be true. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You can't get something for nothing. Sure, it's it's faith, but it's not faith alone. It's faith and. It's more than. And so the matter is settled by the Jerusalem Council, and I would argue it affects everything that Paul writes from this point in time. Galatians was his first book, but you see grace infused in everything that Paul writes from this point in time. In fact, Paul has to go around defending himself and defending the gospel of grace because everywhere he goes, he is accused of this. That's too good to be true, Paul. You're making it too easy. Salvation cannot be a free gift. Forgiveness of sins cannot be a free gift. God wouldn't give away the most valuable thing in the universe for free. And Paul constantly has to defend the gospel of the grace of God. In modern terminology, the attack is called sometimes easy believism. You're saying it's faith and faith alone, that's easy believism. Let me tell you, men and women, that's a ridiculous phrase. There's nothing easy about faith. There's nothing easy about faith. Faith is the greatest miracle that occurs in someone's life where they go from disbelieving that Jesus is the Son of God to believing that he's the Son of God to trusting in themselves and their own goodness to saying, I have nothing to give and falling on their knees before God and saying, thank you, I believe in Jesus and Jesus alone. That is a miracle. Easy believism. No such thing exists. Sometimes it's called cheap grace. You're making grace cheap. You know what? Grace is not cheap. Grace is costly. It's costly. It cost God what was most valuable to him, the life of his son, Jesus. It cost Jesus everything. He gave his body, his spirit, separated from the Father, what was most valuable to him. It was costly. And because it was so costly to God, it is free to us. That is the grace of God. And church, fortunately for us, it is recorded in Scripture that the church went to battle for the grace of God and won. But I would argue the battle continues. And we need to see how the church argued that grace is actually grace. Turn back with me to chapter 15 of the book of Acts and verse 6. Peter's argument goes like this. Grace is grace because grace overcomes the law. Grace is superior because it is the only thing that can overcome the law. The law brings death, but God's grace brings life. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and Peter spoke first. And he said to them, brethren, 
You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would, heard the, would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's Acts chapter 10. That's Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Peter makes this argument. Grace is given without distinction. God's grace came to Jewish law keepers in the same way that it came to Gentile law breakers. And God made no distinction. How does Peter know that? Because remember, Peter was in the middle of his sermon, mid-sentence. He hadn't laid hands on anyone. No one had gotten baptized. He's in the middle of his sermon and God's spirit is poured out upon these Roman believers. And they begin speaking in tongues. They give evidence to the fact that they are members of the family of God, and Peter has done nothing other than preach. He didn't describe the law and tell them to obey the law or clean up their acts. In fact, I believe, as we said last week, that the reason Peter doesn't even get a chance to lay his hands on them or to put them under the water is to prove this point. God's grace is given without distinction to lawbreakers and to lawkeepers. And so they receive the grace of God in exactly the same way as we did also. What does that mean? It means that under the old covenant, the sign of being in the family of God was circumcision. Applied to the males and anyone who is a member of such a family was an outward symbol. But now what is the sign that you are a member of the family of God? Spirit of God. Do you possess the spirit of God? That is the mark of being in the family of God. Romans chapter 8, Paul picks up this theme. He says, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ... Well, then he doesn't belong to him. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And how did the Gentiles receive the spirit of God? In exactly the same way that the Gentiles did. By grace through faith alone. Second argument is this. All, in fact, are lawbreakers. Why is it important that grace is given without distinction to lawkeepers and lawbreakers? Well, in fact, all are lawbreakers, Peter is going to argue. Verse 10 Now, therefore, he says, why do you put God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? What is the yoke? The yoke is the law. Okay, that's that's how literally how the Pharisees described the law of Moses. In fact, when they would go out and proselytize, they would say to that proselyte that he needed to take the yoke of the law upon himself. Take the yoke of the law, recite the law, bear up the burden of the law. Why? Because, yes, certainly you need to believe all that we've said and believe that God is the one true God, and then you must obey the law. And Peter says, we couldn't bear it. Peter knew this firsthand, that what the law did for him was it revealed sin in his life, but gave him no power or desire to obey it. And he said, the, the law was a yoke, it was a burden I made plenty of resolutions and proclamations and I failed and I failed and I failed. He says, our fathers couldn't bear it. We couldn't bear it. It was a burden, impossible. So why do you put God to the test since God has removed it? Why do you act as if he is not? Turn with me again to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We looked briefly at this last week. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is expositing 
the true nature of the law. Not just an external form of obedience to a set of rules, but really the true nature of the law. It's chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus says, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That, That had to be utterly shocking to his listeners. Because the most righteous people they knew were the scribes and the Pharisees. And now Jesus says, if you want to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you got to do way better than they're doing. How is that possible? And then Jesus goes on to compare and contrast their understanding of the law, which was entirely external, and his understanding of the law, which goes deep into the heart. The righteousness that God requires requires a transformed heart that the law can't produce. So in verse 21, he says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Oh. Okay, I I can keep the external form of the law. I haven't committed murder. But I have hated. Well, if you've hated, you've broken the law. Sermon on the Mount, exposition of the law, I would argue is first bad news. (laughs) It's first bad news. Before the good news comes, because it reveals the depth of the darkness of our hearts. Verse 27 You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he sums it all up in verse 48, chapter 5. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. In other words, to get in or stay in or prove you're in, the standard is not some relative degree of conforming my life to the law. The standard is actually what? It's, it's perfection. That's bad news, men and women, because no one can perfectly obey. The law is bad news. It reveals how deeply sinful we are without giving us desire or ability to go ahead and perform the law because it doesn't transform the heart. Again, going back to Paul's work in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Right? All, in fact, are lawbreakers. Chapter 3, verse 23. So, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. It's not relative degrees of obedience to the law. It is what? What's the standard? The absolute perfection of the glory of God. How are you doing today, men and women? How are you measuring up? If the law is the pathway to life, Peter would say, we are all completely doomed. Why put that yoke, that burden upon the shoulders of the Gentiles, which none of us could carry? Why? Because all of us are lawbreakers. In other words, free grace is the only grace. Look at verse 11. Chapter 15 of Acts. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. 
We believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are also. What is grace? Grace is a gift. Grace is is the disposition of the heart of God toward broken, fallen humanity. Grace means that God gives all that is good and all that we need without our performance. That's the grace of God. Grace, by definition, is free. Romans 3, verse 23, reading again, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. The word that he uses there for gift is dorea. Dorea. The name Theodore or Dorothy comes from this name. It means gift of God. It means free gift. By definition, the grace of God is a dorea. It is a free gift. If I can illustrate, oftentimes we view salvation uh, as a discount. Right? God takes some of the price off for us because of what Jesus did on the cross. But we believe in that and then we perform. Then we do. It's a discount. You ever had this experience where you go into a store and you see something on sale? Go, man, that's a great sale. That's such a deep discount. I've got to buy it. You make the purchase and all the time you're thinking to yourself about all the money you saved, right? I remember my dad as a kid, he would say to me, can you show me the money you saved? (laughs) No, I can't. Really what's relevant here is the money I spent. Because at the end of the day, I had to make the purchase myself. It might have been discounted, but it wasn't free. And no matter how deep the discount, you still pay. But that's how people often view the grace of God as a discount on the price of salvation. But it's not. It's an absolutely and utterly free gift. It must be a free gift because you don't deserve it. So you can't earn it. And beautifully as a result, you can't lose it. Salvation is a free gift. Paul will go on in chapter 11 and say this. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Could he say it more clearly? In other words, the the phrase free grace is redundant. It's redundant. Because grace is free and free is free. Free grace is redundant. Grace is by definition free. And if you add anything to it, it is no longer, in fact, grace. You've destroyed the gospel of grace. To say it yet another way, faith alone is superior to faith and. Chapter 15, verse 9. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Period. Okay. Mark that period. Circle that period. Write an exclamation mark behind that period. He made no distinction between us and them. How were their hearts cleansed and the debt removed forever by faith, period. And if you add anything to faith or you embed anything in faith and say faith is anything more than reaching out and saying yes and receiving a free gift, you have destroyed the grace of God. You destroyed the grace of God. It's not faith in, it's faith alone. Just faith. Let me illustrate. I am I'm not a huge fan of uh, musicals. Um, my wife is. She loves musicals. She's seen every musical ever produced ever because she, uh, she grew up dancing and singing and enjoying all that production kind of stuff. And my daughter loves to dance and she likes to sing. And so they really enjoy musicals. And from time to time they'll say, hey, why don't you come watch Guys and Dolls with us? And I go, oh, 
okay. Uh, you know, or hey, how about, you know, West Side Story's on. Let's watch West Side Story. And I go, oh, you know, uh, I think the toilets need to be cleaned. You know, I mean, it's like, watch Guys and Dolls, clean the toilets. I'll clean the toilets. I mean, that's generally speaking with musicals, that's kind of how I feel. However, there, there are a couple that I love. I love uh, Fiddler on the Roof. So I love the, the Russian-Jewish culture in that. Fascinating musical. All-time favorite, though, is Les Mis. Okay, love Les Mis. I've seen Les Mis three times, uh, once on Broadway. I hope that I get to see it 300 more times. I love it because it is the embodiment of grace versus law. It is, it is such a beautiful story of grace and law. If you have not seen it, let me sum up very quickly the two main characters represent grace and law. Jean Valjean is a criminal whose life is transformed by grace. And because of that transformation, he wants to go around and demonstrate grace to everyone around him because he's experienced grace. And so he changes his name and he goes about doing good and blessing people with grace. Javert is the police officer. He represents the law, and the law does not bend. The law does not change. And in his mind, Jean Valjean is still a criminal, and he hasn't changed, and he never can change, and so he needs to be prosecuted and put back into jail. And so throughout the story, Javert is chasing, pursuing. The law is chasing, trying to punish again the man who represents grace. And finally, toward the end, of the story, Javert catches up to Jean Valjean, but Jean Valjean is an extremely strong man and he turns the tables and he's holding Javert's life in his hands. He can put him to death in that moment and if he does, then he never has to worry about the law any longer chasing after him. But what does he do? He releases him, he shows him grace, he even shows law grace and he, he gives him back his life. And Javert is, is standing by himself at the end on a bridge and he is baffled and angry and frustrated at this man who represents grace. And he says this, who is this man? Jean Valjean, who is this man? What sort of devil is he to have caught me in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe out the past and wipe me clean off the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his And he gave me back my life. Damned if I'll live in the debt of a thief. Damned if I'll yield at the end of the chase. I am the law and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There is nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. And with that, he leaps off the bridge and kills himself. Because he recognizes law and grace are completely incompatible. And there's part of you that says, oh, why could you not just receive grace? But he can't because he's law. And law and grace cannot go together. And there's another part of you that says, yes, grace wins in the end, right? Law dies and grace wins. And that's the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace wins. Grace wins. And I I love that beautiful imagery. When it comes down to it, one of them's got to die. You cannot live in both systems. It's law or grace. Men and women, which system will you live in? Where will you live? In the grace of God who, who, in who loves you unconditionally because of his son, Jesus Christ, 
who provided you costly grace at no cost to you, that is grace. Grace wins. Grace triumphs. And the concluding argument is this, because grace has always been God's way. Always. Peter speaks because of his position of prominence. Then Paul and Barnabas tell everything that they've experienced. And then James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, he stands up and speaks. And what James does is he goes all the way back to the prophets. He says, you know, you need to understand, church, the prophets have always said this. This has always been God's way. That through the Messiah, the son of David, God would bring in the Gentiles, not through law, but through grace. Grace is the only way because we don't deserve relationship with God. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. We don't even contribute to the process. We just say, yes, I accept. As Paul will sum up his argument, Romans chapter 4, he says this. To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith and his faith alone, not through his works, that's what is credited as righteousness. See, this is really the the summary of Paul's argument in a sense in Romans 4 where he says, let's go back all the way to Abraham because that's where the Jewish nation started. Let's look at Abraham. How did Abraham get in? How did Abraham stay in? How did Abraham prove he was in? It was just a gift of God, right? Abraham didn't get in through his good works. Abraham didn't get in through circumcision. He was already in. Abraham didn't get in through the law because the law didn't come for 400 more years. And if that's true of Abraham, well, that's true of all of you Jews and that's true of all all of humanity because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and no one can earn their way back to God. It must be a gift. And so grace and law are incompatible and grace must triumph because grace is a gift. Grace is a gift. And as James will argue, grace leads us to love. Grace leads us to love. Are we saying that doing good to others is unimportant? No, it's not what we're saying at all. We're just saying that that doesn't get you in or keep you in or prove that you're in. Doing good for others is just a natural reaction to having received the grace of God. In fact, James is going to sum up his argument and say, you know, I think we should write to these churches to abstain from four things. Four things that are very common in the Gentile world but four things that are very offensive to Jews. And everywhere that the church is beginning to be planted, well, there's a Jewish community there. And we still want the Jews to come in. And we want the Jews to be comfortable with the Gentiles. We want them to sit at the table of the Lord and eat together. So Gentiles, please abstain from these four things. And you know how the Gentiles react? Ah, we're not going to do that. They go, yes, we would love to. We would love to extend grace because we've received grace, right? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Anybody know it? I hope so. It should be deeply embedded in your heart, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, same word, Terea. Not as a result of works, so no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You need to memorize it. And you need to remember that 8 and 9 come before 10. Okay? 8 and 9, then 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, God created beforehand, that we should walk in them. It's important that we do good to others and bless others. Absolutely. Because of 2, 
8 and 9, we do good out of, out of a position or a place of security, not in order to get to a place of security. Because we are safe and secure in the grace of God, therefore we have freedom and courage and hope to say, yes, I can do good to you because so much good has been done to me. I want to do good, in fact, because the grace of God transforms me. I have received richly and freely. On the other hand, if you just tell me all the things I must do, does that transform my heart or make me love and long to do good to others? It does not. There's no power in that. There's only power to transform us in the grace of God. First service, after the first service, I was talking to a couple for whom that Light just really honestly finally dawned in the, in the last couple of weeks. They were in a conversation where finally the grace of God just sunk in. And she said, as I was hearing it again and thinking about what God has been teaching me, she said, part of me, I just, I started laughing as I was sitting there and then I wanted to cry and then I wanted to laugh and I wanted to cry. And I said, man, laugh and cry all that you want. I've been with people on occasion, just a few occasions in my life where They had that moment where they understood the grace of God being freely accepted and loved and brought into the family of God and being there forever safe and secure. I've been with people in that moment where they got it. And it's wonderful. I've seen people sitting out there who just begin to cry or laugh or celebrate and say, yes, grace wins. Grace wins. Law's dead. Grace wins. Now let's go do good. Let's share the grace of God. Now, that's my application for you this morning. If you have received the grace of God, share the grace of God. And as you share the grace of God, it should sound so ridiculous, so outrageous, so free that people say, you know, that just sounds too good to be true. No such thing as a free lunch. You don't get something for nothing. That should be their response. You say, yeah, I know. Everything else in the world is like that except the one thing that you most need and you most want. It's a relationship with God forever. Take it. Okay? Extend the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Extend the grace of God through forgiveness. Maybe there's someone who has wronged you and they don't deserve your forgiveness. They haven't even asked for your forgiveness. But the grace of God says forgive anyway. Why? Because you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. No other reason. Not because they deserve it. Not because they're asking for it. Just because you've received so freely. And so give it. Give it. I promise you there's a level of freedom that you will know in giving. In living in the grace of God and extending the grace of God. Or maybe this morning you need to receive the grace of God for the first time. You come in with a weight of debt and you say, I just can't imagine that God could accept me or love me. And maybe he would let me in, but I know that I can't do enough to stay in. And I, don't, I can't imagine proving to others that I'm in. My life is such a wreck. You're exactly the person for whom Jesus Christ died. And God says to you, welcome. I encourage you, if you've never received the grace of God, that you do so this morning. Say, God, yes. I don't bring anything. My hands are empty. I just reach out and I receive. I say, thank you that Jesus died for me. I believe. Let's pray. Let me encourage you, if uh, that is a decision you are even thinking about this morning, we'll have some folks up front who would love to pray with you and encourage you in that decision as you move forward. Or maybe you're feeling challenged and convicted that there's someone that you need to forgive, that you need to release a debt 
because you have been released of a debt. Again, please come up and uh, receive encouragement and the power of prayer along with the family of God. Father, let us, let us live in your grace. Let us uh, accept what is such a phenomenally, almost ridiculous statement that what we most need and most want, you have given to us freely. We can't earn it, but you offer it to us as a gift. Father, let us live in that place and the security and the strength that that brings. And let us, as a result, be gracious people because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week being gracious to those around you. We'll see you next week.